The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Lyrics of Their Life, Episode 1, Part 2 of the Freddie Mercury story. In Part 1, we saw the life of Freddie unfold as a young man raised in Zanzibar, being sent to a boarding school in India, and fleeing with his family as immigrants to his new home in working-class England. We saw the rise of a legend as he underwent some personal battles regarding his sexuality and discovering himself and witnessed the moment Queen rose to the top with an array of mega-hits including Bohemian Rhapsody and Another One Bites the Dust. Queen were now ready to carry that success well into the 80s and beyond, but it wouldn't be without controversy, crazy moments and of course devastation. If you haven't yet downloaded or listened to part one yet, I highly recommend you check that out first and get caught up on the incredible story so far. So without further ado, let's get back into the story. I'm your host Adam Hampton and this is Lyrics of Their Life. While Queen had slowly lost some of their British appeal with their latest album, The Game, Queen had gained many American fans along the way, making them the hottest band in the country and the world. Fans couldn't get enough and wanted Queen when the critics didn't, which was reflected in their amazing record sales. Queen began The Game tour in June of 1980 and would wrap it up in November 1981, performing a total of 81 shows across North America and South America the UK, Europe and Japan. It was the first time Freddie would appear with his iconic moustache. He attempted to have a more macho look by doing away with the flamboyant clothes and swapping them for t-shirts, singlets and jeans. Queen would also promote their latest album, titled Flash Gordon, as the soundtrack to the film. It was in December 1980 that Queen released their ninth studio album named Flash Gordon which was a full-length soundtrack to the superhero film Flash Gordon. The movie itself was a flop at the box office, but the soundtrack managed to reach number one in Austria, number two in Germany, and number ten in the UK, but failed to make an impact in the US, coming in at number 23. It received mixed reviews, but was never intended to be a groundbreaking album. Over time, Flash Gordon sold 3.1 million copies, becoming their second lowest-selling album of their career, just in front of Queen 2. The way Queen included the film's dialogue on the soundtrack would become one of the first to do so, paving the way for other soundtrack albums to follow suit. The track titled Flash managed to reach number one in Austria, number three in Germany, and number ten in the UK and Ireland. Queen would go on to open live shows with the Flash theme on many occasions, with amazing light shows and effects being used to heighten the drama of their performances. After conquering the US, Queen decided to venture to South America, where they had produced a cult following over the years. During 1981, on the game tour, they performed in Brazil, Argentina and Venezuela on their first ever stadium tour. Along with the excitement of the stadium tour, 
The band were also scared for their own safety, as these countries had a history of kidnapping for ransom, theft or murder. As Roger recalls, police just shooting at will and describes being seated in a dugout at Sao Paulo Stadium that had broken glass everywhere. Despite these concerns, the band would have a great tour performing in front of 131,000 people at Sao Paulo in Brazil on just the one night, and then the second night in front of 120,000. They would also perform in front of a massive 300,000 strong crowd in Buenos Aires in Argentina, becoming the biggest crowd at a single concert in Argentina. The South American fans knew all the songs line for line, displaying just how far the band had reached across the world and connected with so many individuals. This was one of the first concerts where Freddie would perform the famous call and repeat. During these South American performances, Queen managed to gain a certain amount of control over the crowd, which the leaders of these countries would have been slightly envious about, as they had struggled to do this themselves in the past. The government feared riots would ensue, so guards with heavy weaponry were brought to the stadium and police were seen shooting in the air to clear traffic for the band to get through. It was a massive eye-opener for Freddie and his Queen band members. While on tour in 1981, Freddie was asked whether musicians should or could use their position to influence people's political views to change the world for the better. As Queen would often steer clear of political material, Mercury responded, Leave that to the politicians. Certain people can do that kind of thing, but very few. John Lennon was one. Because of his status, he could do that kind of preaching and have effect on people's thoughts. But to do this, you have to have a certain amount of intellect and magic together. And the John Lennons are few and far between. People with mere talent like me have not got the ability or power. Despite Freddie being a flamboyant star with intellect himself, he would always remain extremely humble and quick to pray as others at his own expense. After Queen's longest tour yet, they went to Montreux in Switzerland to record their next album, again to escape the ridiculously high royalty taxes of the UK. The studio was located inside a casino and was one of the best in the world, overlooking the water with state-of-the-art equipment. It was here that Queen would record the hit Under Pressure that would be released on the 26th of October 1981, featuring another outlandish British performer in David Bowie, who was also making waves in the pop rock and psychedelic scene at the time worldwide. Bowie was good friends with Freddie and heard that he was in the area and decided to invite Freddie and the band to meet for drinks. Queen and Bowie would end up back at the studio and began to jam together for fun until they decided to produce a song together. John Deacon began rattling off a great bass line, playing it over and over, and they all loved it, with Bowie having much to do with the rhythm of the track after that. After going out for some pizza, the band returned to recall the track, but John had forgotten how the bass line went. Luckily, Roger remembered, and they recorded the track straight away. Freddie and Bowie both performed the vocal sections separately, with rough ideas and lyrics written down, but most of it was just made up on the spot, like Freddie's da-da-bop section. Under Pressure have reached number one in the UK, becoming their second number one in the UK since Bohemian Rhapsody. It also hit number one in the Netherlands and Canada, and charted in the top ten in several countries including Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. As mentioned earlier, Freddie would attempt to leave protest songs to other artists, but in this particular track, the lyrics speak to the importance of love caring for the less fortunate, and how pressure can destroy lives, as the MTV music video also depicts. Under Pressure would also become Queen's first MTV-style music video. 
Under Pressure struggled to rise up the charts in the US, only making it to number 29. Despite the unsatisfying success in the US, the song was massive almost everywhere else and was seen as the saving grace when included on their upcoming album that would go on to be panned upon its release. Queen would head to Munich, Germany to record the rest of their album, although things wouldn't go exactly to plan and would begin to go downhill for the four members of Queen. The studio was situated in a basement underneath a large multiple-storey hotel. It was a dark and depressing building and was known for people jumping off the roof to commit suicide. The recording process would become long and drawn out as they found themselves procrastinating and lacking motivation. It was an unfortunately draining experience for the four as they began to argue regularly and it began to get personal. This didn't help when Paul Prenter attempted to drive further wedges into the band, pulling Freddie away into the Munich club scene, scoring him loads of cocaine and hooking him up with strange men. The other band members also began to get involved with cocaine and Queen had started to spiral down a toxic path that could spell the end to their reign. Freddie became extremely emotional and depressed at this time, which was unlike his usual lover of life self. His bandmates began fearing for his safety and health as Freddie was having lots of unprotected sex with both men and women and with a new disease arising related to sexual intercourse known as HIV or AIDS becoming more prevalent Many close to him were worried he would contract the disease that was yet to be understood or curable. Paul Gampuccini, a fellow gay friend of Freddie's, recalled his apparent reply when asked what he is doing to protect himself. Freddie said, Darling, fuck it. I'm doing everything with everybody. Freddie was living extremely dangerously and just wanting to live for the moment and enjoy himself, although this erratic and carefree behaviour would later catch up on him down the track. Expecting to add to their extensive run of hits, Queen will release arguably their most daring but criticised album of their extensive catalogue to date, titled Hot Space, on the 21st of May 1982. Despite making it to number one in both the Netherlands and Austria, and the top five in Germany, Sweden, the UK, New Zealand and Norway, Hot Space would become yet another disappointing album in regards to sales, with just 3.2 million copies sold worldwide to this day. Paul Prenter would also have a major influence on the album, encouraging Freddie to direct Queen's style towards the funk club sound as it would feature as a soundtrack in gay nightclubs. He also hinted to Freddie the prospect of going solo and exploring this style of music further. The album was heavily influenced by John Deacon's vision of a funk disco influenced album with lots of club style beats and bass lines. John's futuristic and creative ideas would seem butt heads with both Brian and Roger, as John told Brian that his guitar style was not suiting Deacon's vision for the album. The disco funk style album would appeal more to Freddie, who liked the clubbing vibes and visions that John laid out to him. Freddie became obsessed with bringing this sound into a Queen album and would rely heavily on the synthesizer and electrical style instruments such as a drum machine and synth bass. Roger also revealed he disliked the new style, stating he hates dance music, and in particular the song Backchat, while he would also be required to play the electric drums on most tracks. The track Backchat was written by John Deacon and would reach the top 20 in both South Africa and Ireland, but failed to do well in the UK and US, only making it to number 40 in the UK. Despite that, there was no denying Backchat was a funky, slick bassline track and was written about Freddie's overbearing ways, such as always getting his own way and John having enough of it. 
The song, though, was a bit of fun for the band, and Freddie happily sung it for John, making it his own with his brilliant presence. One of the most successful tracks besides Under Pressure was the track Body Language, which was written by Freddie. Body Language was a highly erotic, sexually driven track featuring Freddie's moans and groans that became a hit in North America, where it reached number 3 in Canada and 11 in the US, where it received extensive radio play and was a hit on the adult contemporary chart. It also reached the top 10 in the Netherlands and Sweden, but only peaked at number 25 in the UK and 28 in Australia. It was such a shock and drastic change of style for fans from the UK that almost instantly turned fans away from both the single and the album. The music video would become the first to feature Freddie Mercury with his iconic moustache look and could be seen with his bandmates acting very suave in their leather black jacket attire, clicking along to the beat of the track. The video would become the first to be removed in MTV's history, however, for displaying sweaty naked bodies sliding all over each other, which was deemed too much for television in 1982. To this day, it still stands in the Guinness World Records as the first to be removed for this very reason. The song heavily features the synth bass as the main instrument, along with Freddie's vocals. Freddie obviously writing the song about his sexual experiences. Roger would also have his chance to release a song he had written in his own preferred style, calling it Calling All Girls. With a noticeably retro Queen sound compared to the rest of the album, and featured a unique record scratching technique. It would become the first single of Rogers to be released after all those years, and reach number 6 in Poland, 33 in Canada, and a lowly number 60 in the US. Rogers' other tracks he wrote titled Action This Day would have a Beatles sound to it and would become one of the only tracks from the album to make the set list in future and feature as a fan favourite that went on to be played year after year. Freddie would also write the funk disco track Staying Power that reached number 21 in Poland and the very underrated swinging funk track written with John Deacon called Cool Cat. One underrated song in particular included a tribute song for John Lennon called Life Is Real, Song for Lennon. The track is very similar to the solo style of music Lennon recorded and is a fitting tribute to the legend that Freddie had admired for so long. John Lennon had been shot dead just a year before Hot Space was recorded and this is a track that is often overlooked as a Queen classic. The album was costly for Queen as they had lost a lot of fans. The diehard ones even showing up to concerts displaying signs against the latest style change. They will perform a total of 69 shows on tour across Europe, the UK, North America and Japan from April to November of 1982. Many believe that the Hot Space tour, despite the album's success, was the best time to witness Freddie's vocals as they had been the most clear, well-rounded and mature of his whole career. His voice was at its strongest before declining slightly around 1984. They also toured for the first time with a fifth member on keyboard, former Mott the Hoople member Morgan Fisher. Fisher had connections with former Smile member Tim Staffel, who formed a project together called Morgan, and was also a member of Mott back when Queen had supported them on Queen's first tour of the US. While many had criticised the album, the King of Pop Michael Jackson absolutely loved it, and says it was a major influence on the sound of his own album, Thriller. While the guitarist from the band Extreme, Nuno Bedencourt, claims the album was extremely important in shaping his ideals around creating music due to Queen's lack of the use of guitar in the album. During 1983, Queen had a number of meetings after the lack of success from Hot Space and decided to take a much needed break from one another. Roger tried his hand at his own solo album titled Strange Frontier, 
that would later be released after Queen's next album, but his single Man on Fire only reached number 66 in the UK. Roger had previously released an album back in 1981 titled Fun in Space that reached number 18 on the UK album charts, with his single Future Management reaching number 49 in the UK. Brian travelled to LA and phoned up some friends and decided to start up his own project with fellow guitarist Eddie Van Halen called Starfleet Project, relating to his astronomy interests. The two-day project resulted in a three-track CD with a single-titled Starfleet that wasn't a commercial success. John Deacon went on to feature on a number of tracks on bass for a range of artists while Freddie took the time off to party and enjoy his time in the club scene. In August 1983, Queen returned fresh and ready to take on their 11th studio album. They started off recording in Munich, Germany, where they had finished the Hot Space album, but decided this time they needed a more positive change. Queen deciding Munich was no good for them decided to opt for the much warmer Los Angeles in the US to record and finish the album. Queen decided they would record their parts in separate studios, allowing each other some space to work on their songs without getting in each other's way. The first single off the album was released on the 23rd of January and was a massive success, reaching number one in seven countries including Sweden and Ireland and it went to number two in the UK, Australia, the Netherlands and three other countries while reaching the top five in New Zealand, South Africa and Switzerland also. The first single titled Radio Gaga off the album was released on the 23rd of January and was a massive success reaching number one in seven countries including Sweden and Ireland, it went to number two in the UK, Australia and the Netherlands and three other countries while reaching the top five in New Zealand, South Africa and Switzerland also. It limped into number 16 in the US, which would become Queen's last top 20 hit in the States. Despite not being a massive hit in the US, it received lots of airtime, both through radio and MTV with the music video featuring Freddie, Roger, John and Brian in a four-seater futuristic car with a microphone for a steering wheel. It would become a very popular music video at the time, and it would also become another stadium favourite with fans clapping along to the chorus. Radio Gaga was written by Roger Taylor as his young French-speaking son had come up to him saying, Radio Kaka. Roger felt it was a great line and he instantly put a backing track to the lyrics and played it for Freddie, who loved it. On the 27th of February 1984, Queen officially released The Works as their 11th studio album. The Works went to number 1 on both the Argentinian and Dutch charts, while coming in at number 2 in the UK, Austria and Norway, and making the top 5 in 4 other countries including Sweden. But the album would sell dramatically low in the US after one particular music video for their next single, bringing Queen's reign over America to an abrupt end. Queen decided to bring in American keyboard player Fred Mandel to play the synthesizer for the album, most notably for a track titled I Want to Break Free. Mandel had previously toured and worked with Queen on Hot Space and would become an unofficial fifth member of the band during 1984. Mandel was brought in for the track I Want to Break Free as John didn't want a guitar solo to ruin his vision for the song he had wrote. John wrote the song through the perspective of a man on the women's liberation movement. John Deacon was referred to as the band's secret weapon, with John and Roger now coming up with a lot more material and smash hits. It was a massive comeback for Queen in the UK, where I Want to Break Free reached number 3 on the singles chart after its release on the 2nd of April 1984. 
It was also a massive hit worldwide and went to number one in six countries, including South Africa, and made the top ten in seven countries, including Australia and New Zealand. But it did, however, lose a lot of fans in the process, ironically in the same place they had just relocated to. I Want to Break Free struggled in the US, only peaking at number 23. This was due to the controversial music video that accompanied the track featuring the band members wearing drag in their music video. Many media outlets suggested it must have been Freddie's idea, but it was actually Roger's girlfriend's vision to dress the band in drag, mimicking the ITV soap opera TV show Coronation Street. The American audience didn't get the comedic English-type humour displayed in the video clip and was therefore banned from MTV, their second clip to be banned in a number of years. In the film clip, Freddie was playing the role of a hard-working housewife vacuuming the floor and dusting. Freddie was dressed in a black wig, pink circular hoop earrings, a pink turtleneck sleeveless tank top and black latex-style skirt with fishnets and high heels, all while sporting his famous moustache. Roger was dressed as a schoolgirl, John was dressed as an old woman reading the newspaper, and Brian was a middle-aged woman with curlers in his hair, sipping a cup of coffee reading a magazine. This was all too much for the people of America, and resulted in US sales plummeting, and the band ultimately would never recover in the US again. Freddie would soon cancel all tour plans to the US due to the country's shunning of the song, and due to the Americans' homophobic ideals, as they had asked Queen to produce an alternative video for a US audience, with Freddie refusing. Despite this, the song was a massive hit elsewhere, and the band all enjoyed making the video together, having lots of laughs, and bringing them momentarily closer. The song would become an anthem relating to Nelson Mandela's imprisonment at the time, and would become a theme song of the apartheid movement in South Africa. It's a Hard Life would be the third single from the album to be released during July of 1984, and was another successful release for the band, peaking at number 6 in the UK and number 2 in Ireland. Written by Freddie, the song is like a carry-on from Freddie's earlier song, Play the Game, as it speaks about the struggles to maintain a loving relationship of any kind, with trust being a major factor. The track's melody is performed in a more classic Queen style, compared to their current style, and was quite an underrated song worldwide, only really charting well in Great Britain. The music video for the song was very elaborate, featuring Freddie dressed in a red peacock-style one-piece, as if the set was from a play or musical highlighting Freddie's love of opera, and didn't include any synthesizer like on most tracks for the album. Roger and Brian did not enjoy shooting the video, and found it to be embarrassing and missing the point of Freddie's lyrics. Queen's final release from the works, titled Hammer to Fall, was written by Brian May, with lyrics pointing to the song being about the Cold War and nuclear war. It would reach number 13 in the UK and would chart highly in South Africa at number 3. South Africa had recently emerged as a new popular fan base for the band and Queen would look to take advantage of this by taking some of their shows there. Queen went on tour performing 48 shows from 1984 to 1985, with the Works album selling 5.1 million copies worldwide, a significant increase compared to their last two albums, but with an obvious decline in sales in the US. Queen began their works tour in Belgium on the 24th of August 1984 and travelled around Europe and the UK to begin with. In Hanover, Germany, the stage design was quite complex with huge rotating cogwheels at the rear of the stage and multiple levels of stairs making it difficult for Freddie to quickly navigate his way around while performing. 
Freddie had developed a ligament damage problem with his knee prior to these shows, increasing the difficulty to manoeuvre when he suddenly fell down the stairs while performing Hammer to Fall. Mercury decided to play on, performing three more songs before having to cut the show short and be taken to hospital. After recovering, Freddie and Queen continued the tour just two nights later in Berlin. Most shows were around 9,000 to 20,000 strong as they travelled throughout Europe and the UK before coming to Brazil. Queen performed two shows at 2 in the morning in front of around 700,000 people at Rio de Janeiro. Queen returned to Australia to tour for the first time in years and also visited Japan and New Zealand. The works tour was the first time North America was left out, despite Freddie living in New York at the time. Freddie would dress in drag of performances of I Want to Break Free and it was a humorous side of the concert that many enjoyed. Queen's manager Jim Beach had told the US media that they would not tour due to fears for Freddie's voice straining. While somewhat truthful, this was obviously due to the way the American public and MTV had reacted to the controversial music video. It was during the Amazing Works tour that Queen would venture to South Africa for the first time. In 1984, the United Nations requested entertainers and musicians to boycott any plans to visit or tour South Africa due to apartheid at the time. The British Musicians Union banned all of its members from performing in Sun City. Queen decided to undertake a tour of South Africa's Sun City and perform at the Entertainment Centre in October, ignoring the warnings. Sun City was the self-confessed fun capital of Southern Africa. The South Africans became big fans of Queen's music in the 80s, and Queen's decision to tour led them to cop loads of criticism. The notion at the time was if you travelled to Sun City that you were a supporter of apartheid. Apartheid was the system in South Africa from 1948 to the early 1990s that was based around white supremacy and segregating black Africans away from South Africa by not allowing them to have any political, social or economic power. The belief was that Queen was supporting this, but it simply wasn't the case. Queen did it for their fans and were there to play for them, not to support racism. Sun City is a premium holiday resort with a number of hotels, attractions and activities such as gambling and Queen were offered a large sum of money to play some shows at the venue which was hard to refuse. Queen were excited to play there and tick another country off their list. It just happened to be a sensitive time to tour Sun City but by no means did the band intend to cause any harm. Manager Jim Beach told the band that the crowd would be a mix of white and black fans but unfortunately this was not the case. Although the crowd were not seemingly in favour of apartheid themselves and just enjoyed the music. Queen would face loads of criticism for playing there and Roger states in an interview that they regret ever going there in the first place. Brian makes a great point stating in an interview, If you adopted a policy of never playing in a country where you don't approve of the politicians, there would be really few places you could play. While in South Africa, they would travel to Botswana to support a local school for deaf and blind children and other charity work. But this was conveniently left out of the tabloids by the media, choosing to focus on the negatives instead. Queen performed three shows in Sun City where Freddie's voice began to give way, forcing them to reschedule some shows. Queen were eventually fined by the British Musicians Union and blacklisted by the United Nations for performing at Sun City. A huge overreaction when Queen simply wanted to perform for their fans and earn their hard-earned wage. Queen wrapped up the works tour in Japan on the 15th of May 1985. Freddie decided soon after this tour that he wanted to walk away from Queen for good. All the backlash seemed too much for Freddie and his personal manager Paul Prenser further encouraged him to start his own solo career. 
Again, the band's relationship with Freddie had become strained and it seemed as though Prenner had finally pulled Freddie away for good. Once again, the members of Queen would venture off into their own projects, with John Deacon working with members of bands such as Bad Company, The Pretenders and Finn Lizzy, contributing to several releases and performing with a band called The Immortals, and releasing a single called No Turning Back for the film Biggles Adventure in Time. Roger would go on to start his own band called The Cross and co-produce an album for the band Magnum, while Brian laid low. Meanwhile, Freddie moved back to Munich, hitting the party scene and initially living on his own, and with his producer, Reinhold Mack, at his house with his family. Freddie would become an uncle figure to Reinhold's children, even becoming one of the kids' godfather. Freddie said to Reinhold it had been the best time of his life, and that he was enjoying breaking away as a solo artist. Shortly after, while clubbing, he reconnected with a buxom blonde Austrian actress and softcore porn star named Barbara Valentine, and soon after, the two began living together. Barbara was a middle-aged actor struggling to stay relevant and took Freddie under his wing when he was vulnerable in Munich. She was well-respected within the gay scene, regularly showing up in gay bars. The two engaged in a sexual and semi-romantic relationship and would often have threesomes inviting another male into the picture. The two had met previously as she was included in the music video for It's a Hard Life in 1984. Freddie would often deny the relationship, stating she was just a friend. At the time, Freddie had also met his then-boyfriend, Winnie Kirchberger, through Valentine and one of their threesomes. Winnie was a German man and the two could hardly understand each other, which appears to be what attracted Freddie to Winnie. This soon wore off and the relationship ended rather quickly. Freddie's former bandmates and other friends of Freddie did not think highly of Barbara's influence on Freddie, some believing she was worse than Paul Prenner. Barbara would also be known to hook Freddie up with both cocaine and sex, Freddie's two weaknesses. On one occasion, Freddie cut himself really badly in the bathroom of their house they shared together. Barbara went to check on him and offered to help clean up, but Freddie bluntly refused her help as he was worried about her touching his blood. This was an early indication that Freddie was worried that he may be at risk of AIDS. The disease was not yet common or little was known about its potential harm or what actually caused it. At first it was viewed as a type of cancer but was very worrying to professionals. Freddie decided to finish the solo album he had been working on and move away from Barbara in Munich as he grew bored of the lifestyle and his good friend and former fiancé Mary Austin had persuaded him to come home to London. Since the band's first break in 1983, Freddie had been working on new material for a solo album. He began recording the album with Queen keyboard player Fred Mandel and Reinhold Mack while living with him in 1984 in Munich, Germany, and it was ready in January of 1985 for its release. Freddie would release his first solo song in 1984 titled Love Kills, which was a synth disco type song that did quite well, reaching number 10 in the UK. This excited many for what was to come and the upcoming album was highly anticipated by both fans of Freddie and his former bandmates, eager to see whether he would succeed or fail. On the 29th of April 1985, Freddie would release his debut solo album titled Mr. Bad Guy, as that's the way he was made to feel at the time. It would sell 180,000 copies in its first week, which helped it to debut at number 6 on the UK charts, but it was relatively a worldwide flop falling away rather quickly and selling well below expectations. 
Despite the album flopping and being heavily criticised, creating the album was fulfilling for Freddie to put his own material out without having Brian to make the tracks more rock orientated and was a good outlet for Freddie's love of disco and dance music. Freddie would also write all 11 songs included on the album. The first single, I Was Born To Love You, had a small amount of success, reaching number 11 on the UK charts. It also went to number 4 in South Africa and number 10 in Germany. In Freddie's first music video as a solo artist, he is seen dancing and singing in front of a room full of mirrors, and it was said that his hair almost caught fire during the production of that video, after his video producer tried to create a halo effect around his head. Arguably Freddie's best song from the album was the track Made in Heaven, released as a single in July 1985. Unfortunately it only made it to number 57 on the UK charts, but it was simply a beautiful track that would later become the theme song of Freddie's career and life down the track. The third single from the album called Living On My Own also struggled only reaching number 50 on the UK chart. The song depicted Freddie's struggles with going solo, but remaining optimistic about his solo career improving. The music video also displayed one of Freddie's elaborate parties. Despite Freddie being far from the support of his bandmates and Mary Austin, Freddie felt free and in control of his career, although he was unaware of Paul Prenter having a significant impact on him. His fourth single from the album titled Love Me Like There's No Tomorrow was written about his relationship with Barbara Valentine at the time, according to his assistant Peter Freestone, but would flop at number 76 on the UK charts. The album Mr. Bad Guy was supposed to feature three songs with Michael Jackson, but they were all incomplete due to a number of distractions. Freddie and Michael decided to record at Michael's Neverland Studios. First of all, Michael's pet monkey kept coming into the studio and seemingly critiquing Freddie's vocals, which Freddie found to be incredibly annoying. This was followed by Michael's pet llama also interrupting sessions and making his way into the recording booth, which resulted in Freddie calling up his manager Jim Beach asking him to rescue him, saying, Can you get over here? You've got to get me out of here. I'm recording with a llama. Freddie found Michael to be way too quirky, even for him, and requested to have the sessions cut short. But this was before Michael found Freddie snorting cocaine in his house through a $100 bill, which is said to have put a strain on the two's relationship. They instead decided to release their own version of There Must Be More To Life Than This, and a duet version wouldn't be released until 2014, after the two had well and truly passed. Freddie also said a lack of time contributed to the two not collaborating more due to their busy schedules. After returning home to London, Freddie would eventually meet his future lover Jim Hutton in 1985 at the London nightclub called Heaven. Although it wasn't love at first sight as Jim had knocked back Freddie's initial advances to be bought a drink as he had a boyfriend already. Jim surprisingly didn't even recognise who Freddie was at the time and this attracted Freddie to Jim. Jim was a rugged, stocky Irishman who worked as a hairdresser locally. It wouldn't be until 18 months later when fate would bring the two back together, once again running into each other at the same club. This time Jim was single and they instantly hit it off. They would go their own way for a short while, with Freddie being seen by Jim with other men making him quite jealous. But the two soon started dating and Jim gave Freddie an ultimatum to be serious about their relationship and Freddie agreed. Jim was a gentle, kind man and was good for Freddie. They settled down together and Jim moved in after less than a year. As Freddie began feeling more comfortable, he began to take up some past and current hobbies, such as collecting famous artwork, handcrafted china, Japanese-style clothing and Japanese koi fish, along with adopting more cats. 
Mary had arranged a house for the two to live in, and she even oversaw the renovations for Freddie. Freddie and Jim fell in love with the place, and it would turn out to be Garden Lodge in Kensington, London. After a year together, Jim would present Freddie with a commitment ring, displaying his love for Freddie as he immediately and joyfully accepted and placed the ring on his finger. Freddie would hide his relationship with Jim from the public, and Jim is often seen in the background of photographs, looking just like another member of Freddie's entourage, with the media unaware of their relationship. Mercury had always been very private about his relationships, but also knew the media would scrutinise the pair. He was also keeping his sexuality a secret from his parents, despite them having a pretty good idea that he was gay, and would eventually introduce Jim after they had been together for a while. While it went against their Zoroastrian religion, his parents were somewhat accepting of his sexuality, although not much is known about their true thoughts on the matter. He would eventually reveal to the public for the first time that he was with Jim in an interview, stating he was very happy with his relationship. Despite the two's obvious love for one another, Freddie would claim in an interview that no lover could replace Mary. She is my only friend, and I don't want anyone else. Although the two were not together anymore, Freddie would always speak highly of Mary and say their friendship is like a marriage. They are always supporting and believing in each other. Jim knew how much Mary meant to Freddie and could live with this, knowing how special the two were in each other's eyes. But before much of Freddie's relationship had unfolded, there was one particular event that would change the way the world viewed Queen forever. In 1985, Irish Boomtown Rats lead singer Bob Geldof and Scottish musician Midge Ur began organising a charity event to raise funds to help those in need in Ethiopia. The concert would be held in the UK in unison with the US, designed to switch back and forth from Wembley to JFK Stadium. After compiling a list of willing artists and releasing the list to the general public, Geldof approached the members of Queen, asking them to reunite for a great cause. Freddie was reluctant at first, but eventually decided to join his former bandmates on stage. They were seen rehearsing together, and looked like they never took time apart. They looked more focused than any other of the bands, and they looked very professional. On the 13th of July, 1985, the big day had arrived. With 72,000 people in attendance at Wembley Stadium, including Princess Diana and Prince Charles, the show was ready to begin. The show was opened by the British Army Band, known as the Coldstream Guards, with royal salute and performance of God Save the Queen. This was followed by performances from Status Quo, Style Council, The Boomtown Rats, Adam Ant, Ultravox, Spando Ballet, Elvis Costello, Nick Kershaw, Sade, Sting, Phil Collins, Howard Jones, Brian Ferry with Pink Floyd's Dave Gilmore, Paul Young and U2. Dire Straits would come on next as Freddie and Queen nervously waited to perform. Freddie and Status Quo member Francis Rossi became involved in a slight altercation when the two were play fighting backstage, when Rossi went too far with a certain comment about Freddie's sexuality, resulting in Mercury tightening his grip on a headlock he had Rossi in. The two moved past it, and it wasn't Freddie's only problem, as he had been struggling with his throat in the lead-up and his voice felt strained. Freddie was advised not to perform by his doctor, but he soldiered on, downing six quick shots of vodka and began limbering up. The stage setup included two traffic lights on either side of the stage that would notify the artists when their time was up. Most performers were given an 18 minute timer for a performance. It would turn green once the act had walked on, amber after 16 minutes of the performance, and once it had turned red it was time to finish up a performance and make way for the next artist as they were broadcasting in conjunction with Live Aid in the US. 
The lights hit red for Dire Straits and the broadcast switched to John F. Kennedy Stadium in the US where Neil Young performed a number of tracks to a live crowd of over 100,000 people. At 6.41pm, the broadcast switched back to the UK and it was now time for the comeback of Queen. Queen's sound engineer had been employed for the concert to do the sound engineering and was required to put a limiter on how loud the speakers could go. When Queen came on, he removed the limiter, making Queen the loudest they could possibly be. Queen were introduced by a pair of British comedians before Freddie dressed in a white tank top and blue jeans jogs onto the stage, followed by his bandmates. He waves and salutes to the crowd before shadowboxing thin air as the crowd cheers. He shuffles and shimmies his way over to his piano and starts to play the first notes of Bohemian Rhapsody. Again, the crowd go crazy at the sound of his beautiful piano notes. Freddie, Roger, John and Brian became lost in their performance, providing what is one of the greatest live performances of all time. They exceeded the 18-minute limit, totaling 21 minutes instead. They fit in six of their biggest hits, with a shortened sped-up version of Bohemian Rhapsody, followed by Radio Gaga, with a sea of hands clapping along to the chorus. Freddie then broke out into his famous call and response, where he would yell his warm-up techniques to the crowd and they would repeat. Freddie continued with an energetic performance of Hammer to Fall, dancing and cheekily flirting with the camera, rounding out the performance by picking up the guitar for Crazy Little Thing Called Love and finishing with We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions. Freddie performed with a huge grin on his face the whole time as he was in his element and had the crowd under his command, with the whole crowd in sync with him and singing and dancing along. The performance was simply amazing as the crowd weren't even major Queen fans as they weren't on the line-up announcement that had been released when tickets were sold. The atmosphere was electric and other performers on the night watched on noticing they had just stolen the show, as Freddie strutted around like it was a Queen concert. Geldof had checked the flow of donations several performances in, and it sat at 1.2 million before Queen's performance. He was unsatisfied with this, that was until Queen blew the roof off and donations would flow in. Geldof was amazed and these donations would further be helped along by amazing performances by David Bowie, The Who and Elton John. Freddie and Brian returned to the stage later to perform Is This The World We Created from the Works album. Geldof, Bowie, Pete Townshend and Alison Moyet performed a version of Let It Be with Paul McCartney and the show was closed with every performer singing Do They Know It's Christmas. The performance at Live Aid by Queen would later go on to become the world's best rock performance, as voted by fellow musicians and journalists. The event would go down as one of the biggest live world crossover events of all time, with other countries having their own versions of Live Aid running to raise funds, including Australia, Japan, Canada, West Germany, Austria, Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union. 
For the two main shows in the UK and US, 1.9 billion people tuned in across 150 countries. That's around 40% of the world's population at the time. In total, the concerts raised around £150 million. The organisers attempted to deliver the funds straight to non-government organisations, but proving too difficult, the Ethiopian government acquired most of these funds directly, and it is said that a portion of the money was sadly spent on weapons rather than the famine. After Live Aid, Queen were on a high after their performance. Freddie felt alive again as a member of Queen, and perhaps was the happiest he had ever been. They decided to reunite for good and would head straight into the studio in Munich to record their 12th studio album. They decided to stay together and solely focus on the recording process, avoiding the temptations of the toxic party life of Munich that had tempted them before in the past. On the 4th of November 1985, One Vision was released as the band's first single from their upcoming album. It would reach number 5 in Ireland and number 7 in the UK and number 10 in Australia and was their second biggest hit from the album. This track was written almost instantly after Live Aid. It was originally written by Roger and composed by Brian but all four members were credited as they had also contributed and were now sharing writing credits to be fair to one another. The music video perfectly depicted where Queen were at the time as they looked like they were once again enjoying their time together and it was quite a triumphant moment to see the four back together singing a song about uniting. The second single titled It's a Kind of Magic was released on the 17th of March 1986 and became the biggest hit from the album as it reached number one in Spain and the top five in five countries including the UK and Ireland while charting at number six in Australia and Germany. It was originally written and composed by Roger Taylor and finished by Freddie as Roger had an appointment in the US. Roger was furious that Freddie reworked the track, but ultimately it was credited to Roger despite Freddie's version being on the album and Roger's featuring on the film Braveheart. In June of 1986, Queen would release their album A Kind of Magic, which would soar to number one in Argentina and the UK, selling a total of 100,000 copies in its first week there eventually selling 6.5 million copies worldwide, where it reached the top five in five other countries, including the Netherlands. Much of the album would feature in the Braveheart film and would stay on the album charts in the UK for 63 weeks. A massive comeback for the band off the back of their history-making performance at Live Aid. The band were now all closer than ever and began to share their writing credits for the songs more evenly. They released a total of seven singles, three of which became hits for the band. Other notable tracks included Brian May's Who Wants to Live Forever that reached number 24 in the UK and featured haunting vocals by Freddie and an orchestral section. John Deacon's ballad One Year of Love was a beautiful soulful ballad and the two tracks Freddie and John Deacon wrote together titled Pain is So Close to Pleasure and the track Friends Will Be Friends peaked at number 14 in the UK. Queen were back to their best enjoying the time spent together in the studio and Freddie and John Deacon were on a hot streak of writing great tracks together. During June 1986, Queen embarked on their most elaborate tour yet. Calling it the Magic Tour, they performed to massive stadium audiences and put together some of their best performance of their career. The tour featured all sorts of mayhem, including a fight between two fans at Slane Castle in Ireland, where Freddie threatened to stop the show if they continued to fight. Freddie was giving some of his best vocal performances, but began to grow tired in the second half of shows. Roger noticed this and knew it wouldn't be long before he would need to stop. He realised Freddie was perhaps getting ill. 
Freddy had a persistent sore throat before Live Aid and it began to worry him. On the 9th of August 1986 at Nebworth Park, Freddy would perform live on stage for the final time, not knowing it would be his last. Queen flew in by helicopter and it would be a wild concert with John Deacon throwing his bass guitar at his bass stand, a man being fatally stabbed, a woman in the crowd giving birth halfway through the concert, and the lights being shut off by a fan after the concert had finished, forcing everyone to leave in the dark. Freddie performed at his best for a majority of the concert before noticeably struggling with his breathing while performing their last song on the set list, We Are The Champions. Freddie would eventually agree that he would have to stop as all of the running around on stage was too much and it was getting difficult to keep his regular high energy performances up. Only 26 shows were performed in the end with Europe and the UK being the lucky last bands to witness the legend live in concert. Freddie deep down knew that he was sick with something, and part of him feared that it may be HIV. Freddie had performed a few nights earlier in Budapest in Hungary, and was interviewed after the show where he slipped up after the reporter asked him, Will you come back? Freddie strangely replied, If I'm still alive, I'll come back, suggesting Freddie had a good idea he was ill and that it was serious. In 1986, Freddie was reported to have been leaving a pathology or blood testing clinic on Harley Street, London. The media began to speculate, as they do, without knowing any facts. His 40th birthday party would this time be a quiet occasion, spent with bandmates and close friends, which of course was unlike Freddie. He was clearly slowing down physically and began feeling the effects of the disease. After returning from a trip from Japan with Jim, Freddie was set upon by the media linking him with AIDS. Freddie was visited by a former sexual partner from New York at his place in Garden Lodge. His name was John Murphy and he had been diagnosed with AIDS himself and warned Freddie that he might also have the disease. It is unknown who exactly gave Freddie AIDS as he had many sexual encounters, but all that can be confirmed is that it was most likely contracted in his wild party days back in New York. John Murphy showed Freddie his purple and red coloured blotches on his skin, and Freddie had recognised these on his own body, thinking that they were strange. This was a common symptom of the disease, and worried Freddie. He strongly denied the rumours, but would later be tested in 1987, and blood tests later confirmed he was carrying the HIV virus, and it could lead to AIDS. Freddie would ignore calls from his doctor hiding away in his apartment, knowing the results would come back positive and that his reckless partying lifestyle had caught up on him. When questioned, Freddie would tell the media that he had tested negative to AIDS or HIV. Freddie's doctor had previously taken a sample of one of Freddie's lumps, or red or purple blotches known as a sarcoma. After testing this, Freddie was diagnosed with AIDS in April of 1987. His doctor advised if he wished to live longer, he would need to stop the drinking and smoking, but Freddie couldn't part with these habits. AIDS at the time was basically a ticking time bomb and a death sentence. There was yet to be a cure and medications were still in the trial phases. Freddie told his partner Jim first of all, and Jim was in disbelief, telling him to seek a second opinion. But Freddie knew what he had and the diagnosis was correct. Freddie quickly notified his assistant Peter Freestone and his ex-girlfriend Mary Austin. Queen's manager Jim Beach was next to be notified, with Freddie telling him that he must keep it a secret from his bandmates, which placed Jim in a tough position. Rumours began to circulate about Freddie, as he increasingly changed in physical appearance, looking ill. Journalists would hound his bandmates and friends with questions regarding Freddie's health, but they protected their friend, acting like nothing was wrong, and that he was totally fine. 
Freddy told his bandmates after rumours started to circulate. They assumed something was wrong with Freddy as he sat them down stating, You probably know what I'm going to say. You know what the problem is, but I don't want to talk about it. He just wanted to keep making music until he was unable to and to not focus or dwell on his illness. Freddy was all about living for the moment and he wasn't going to let some disease bring him down. Freddy told those close to him that his parents must not find out and they kept this wish. Roger and Brian later admitted in interviews that they knew something wasn't right and that he was ill, but they were in denial. Even after the announcement, they still held on to hope Freddy would be just fine. After the big news of Freddy's diagnosis, rumours of Freddy having AIDS began to leak. Paul Prenter would cash in and sell a story to The Sun that was published on the 4th of May, 1987. Paul had been out of work since Queen stopped touring the year prior and was not as close with Freddy after he had rejoined with Queen. The headline read, AIDS kills Freddy's two lovers. This hurt Freddy deeply as John Murphy and Tony Baston had passed away from AIDS and it was the first he had heard about it after speaking with John just a year prior. Freddy was also hurt by Prenter walking away with £30,000 from the story and attempting to exploit him and his friends. After the magic tour and Freddy becoming ill, Queen decided to mutually take another break in order to pursue other interests and would again in the meantime venture into solo projects. Freddy would release two tracks for the musical film called Time with the songs In My Defence and Time which reached number 32 on the UK charts. He would then release a cover version of the Platters song The Great Pretender in February of 1987, stating that he wished he had wrote the song as it depicted his life perfectly, especially in regards to him hiding his AIDS, his personality and being a closeted gay man for so many years. He decided to shave off his iconic moustache once and for all for this music video, which sees him parodying himself dressed from a range of times of Queen. The Great Pretender did very well reaching number one in New Zealand, number two in Ireland and number four in the UK, becoming his most successful solo release yet. During 1987, Queen were honoured when they would receive an award for outstanding contribution to British music at the Ivor Novello Awards, a fitting achievement for such an iconic band. Freddie had always been fond of opera music and during 1987 this became a passion to create an operatic style album. He had attended a performance by Pavarotti years earlier in 1983, sparking a fascination with the genre. He had previously been a big fan of Liza Minnelli and was a great admirer of Spanish operatic soprano Montserrat Caballé. He dreamed of performing with Montserrat and insisted he just had to meet her. It was arranged and Freddie was extremely nervous and in awe. The two met and hit it off instantly as the two had a mutual admiration for one another's work. They stayed up all night singing and laughing together becoming great friends. Later in 1987, they decided to record a song together called Barcelona. The pair enjoyed recording it together so much that they decided to write and record a whole album with the help of Mike Moran and Tim Rice. They came up with a total of eight tracks for the album. The single Barcelona was a great piece of music that highlighted Freddie's love of opera music and put on display Freddie's vocal range in a way that had not been seen before. Caballé's operatic vocals would complete the beautiful duet, which was backed by a full orchestra. Freddie's speaking voice was within the baritone range, but he would sing in the tenor range for a majority of his songs, ranging from a bass low F to a soprano high F. His voice was very impressive in this song, and he threw his all into the performance, despite being quite ill. 
When released on the 26th of October 1987, it reached number 8 on the UK and Irish mainstream charts, a great feat for an operatic song. A music video showing Freddie and Montserrat side by side belting out the hit is spine-tingling stuff and one of the greatest moments of Freddie's career. The other three singles would not chart particularly well, but that was to be expected and the album was highlighted as one of Freddie's favourite times in his career and would go on to do considerably well on the mainstream charts, charting at number 15 in the UK and charting well worldwide. Queen would once again reunite for a third time in January 1988 and describe this as their favourite time together as a band. They were all getting along great and appreciated spending time together, especially now that Freddie was quite ill. They got straight to work taking as much time as Freddie needed to record, but the determined Freddie didn't need much encouragement, pumping out an album over the space of a year in between solo work. They released their Verneep studio album titled The Miracle in May 1989, and was the first time the record label EMI took no part in the production of the album since the early 70s, instead signing with Parlophone and Capitol Records. The album would go to number one in the UK, Germany, Switzerland and Austria, and reach the top five in five other countries including Australia and New Zealand, but still struggled to break through to the American top 20, only reaching 24 on the Billboard Top 200. Despite the lack of sales in the US, the album did reasonably well, selling 4.8 million copies worldwide, with Germany and the UK buying up the most copies. Their first of five singles, titled I Want It All, was released just before the album and reached number two in the Netherlands and reached the top five in five countries, including the UK, and managed to break onto the US rock chart at number three, but not the mainstream, as it would only reach number 50 on the Billboard Hot 100, showing how cold the US had become with the band. In the film clip for the song, Freddie displayed a new look with a full stubble-type beard covering up his facial sarcomas, as he began to worry people would notice. I Want It All was a brilliant, solid rock tune that became a great powerful anthem to represent the band. Despite Freddie's voice weakening due to his disease, there were no signs here as he produces an epic performance vocally. The second single, Breakthrough, would reach number 6 in both the Netherlands and Ireland, and number 7 in the UK, and is often a forgotten hit with an epic guitar riff and a hammering bass line and drum beat. Not to mention a brilliant music video that shows Freddie and his bandmates on the top of a train performing the track with their instruments as they duck under tunnels and battle against strong winds. The song was actually once intended to be two separate songs, with the first 30 seconds being written by Freddie called A New Life Is Born, and Roger writing the rest of the song titled Breakthrough. The third single was the new wave track The Invisible Man, and was again written by Roger Taylor. After reading the book of the same name and thinking up the bass line in his head, it would go on to reach number 6 in the Netherlands, number 10 in Ireland, and 12 in the UK. This was followed by the release of the track Scandal, written by Brian May. It only reached 25 on the charts in the UK and number 14 in Ireland, along with 12 in the Netherlands. It was a strong underrated rock track, featuring a great Brian May riff, and was written about Brian May and Freddie Mercury's frustration over media trying to come up with stories to do with their personal lives, as Freddie had been dealing with health issues and May with divorce troubles. It is one of their deepest lyrical songs in years, as Freddie sings, Scandal, now you've left me all the world's gonna know. Hey Scandal, they're gonna turn our lives into a freak show. They'll see the heartache, they'll see our love break. They'll hear me pleading, we'll say for God's sakes. Over and over and over again. Scandal, 
Now you have left me, there's no healing the wounds. Hey, scandal, and all of the world can make us out to be fools. Here come the bad news. Open the floodgates. They'll leave us bleeding. We say, you cheapskates. So let them know when they stare. It's just a private affair. They'll have us hung in the air, and tell me what do they care. It's only a life to be twisted and broken. The track is yet another that has been often forgotten, that has great meaning for lyrics describing the media's continuous prying and torture without showing any remorse or care for their privacy whatsoever. The last single off the album was called The Miracle. The song was composed by the four members of Queen, but had been mainly written by Freddie and John. It reached only number 21 on the UK charts, but was referred to by both Brian and Freddie as one of their favourite tracks. It is a peaceful and optimistic song that encapsulates Freddie's positive outlook on life and finding miracles in everything despite what he was going through. Freddie even slips in a reference for his icon Jimi Hendrix during the song. Freddie had a hand in many of the songs written on this album, including the self-reflective track Was It All Worth It, as Freddie and his bandmates look back on their career to realise it most definitely was. This led the media to assume that something was most definitely wrong with Freddie's health, suggesting he was gravely ill. Freddie began to quickly decline physically, and journalists started to raise questions such as Queen's touring absence in relation to the latest album, as they had in fact decided not to tour due to Freddie's worsening condition. Freddie's appearance and reports from former lovers also began to raise concern and nasty rumours. In 1990, the band received an Outstanding Contribution to Music Award at the Brit Awards. Freddie, along with Brian, Roger and John, walked onto stage to accept the award, but those watching were shocked to see a gaunt, frail-looking Freddie without his famous moustache and looking quite ill. He left the acceptance speech up to Brian, only to say thank you and good night, before walking off quite quickly to avoid the cameras. The media went into a frenzy after this appearance and rumours began to get out of control. An image circulated of Freddie walking out of a clinic with his doctor looking sickly, with tabloids suggesting he had AIDS. Front page news was almost on the daily about Freddie, as rumours of who gave him AIDS and past lovers of Freddie dying of AIDS made headlines. Some even went as far as declaring he had AIDS before he had confirmed it. Freddie had retreated to his home in Kensington at Garden Lodge to escape the media circus, but the media were now attempting to scale his walls, appearing in his garden, snapping pictures and pushing cameras through his bathroom windows. The walls of Garden Lodge were surrounded by paparazzi, allowing Freddie no reprieve. His bandmates and friends would fetch groceries for him and would be swarmed by media trying to snap pictures of the car boot as the media attempted to see what they had bought for him looking for any clues of medication. Deciding it was all getting too much and with Freddie wanting to continue producing music, they decided they needed to relocate. At the time, they were struggling to go anywhere in London without the press hot on their heels, so they relocated back to the beautiful Montreux in Switzerland to escape the media vultures. Freddie felt a lot more comfortable and safer here, allowing him to record with the band in a peaceful and stunning environment. In 1991, the band would put together a number of songs to form the album Innuendo. Freddie at this stage was becoming increasingly ill and was determined to keep pumping out songs and albums. He is seen in a number of music videos released for this album, looking frail but performing with a smile on his face. The album was released on the 5th of February 1991 and instantly went to number one in five countries including the UK and peaked inside the top ten in seven countries including Australia and New Zealand. 
Innuendo would again miss the top 20 in the US, reaching 30 on the Billboard 200. The album would go on to sell around 5.9 million copies worldwide. The album booklet artwork featured an image of Freddy with his beloved cats crawling all over him. The album included seven singles, the first being Innuendo, which reached number one in the UK and Portugal, while also reaching the top ten in a further nine countries, including New Zealand and Germany. It was Queen's third number one in the UK, after Bohemian Rhapsody and Under Pressure. The idea for the song began as a jam session between Roger, John and Brian, while Freddie was upstairs resting, and he overheard the material and began writing a melody and lyrics for the song. The four of them got to work on polishing the track and Roger would finish off the lyrics, styling the rhythm around the Led Zeppelin track Cashmere as a tribute to the band that they all also admired. The song is a theatre operatic style rock song with great lyrics that speak of letting go of egos, religion and other constraints to be free. It has often been described as one of their darkest works to date, but very moving. The second single from the album was released on the 4th of March titled I'm Going Slightly Mad and peaked at number 22 in the UK, where the music video depicts Freddy as a madman with frizzy hair, wearing a suit and covered in lots of makeup. The video was loads of fun to create for Freddy and the band, as it features all sorts of crazy things, such as a penguin, Roger in a gorilla suit, John dressed like a joker, Brian acting like a penguin, and Freddy wearing a bunch of bananas for a hat. The humorous video was a hit with fans, displaying that they don't take themselves too seriously. While Roger would later reveal Freddie was wearing makeup to conceal his appearance as he looked very ill when shooting the video. The song represents Freddie's time back in London and how he felt hounded and trapped by the media. One day while his good friend Peter Straker was around, the two began laughing when they started rattling off crazy one-liners and Freddie decided to turn it into a song. The next single was released in May 1991, titled Headlong, and was written by Brian May for his solo album Plans, but after hearing Mercury sing it, he was more than happy to make it a Queen track. It reached number 12 on the UK charts, and charted at number 3 on the US rock mainstream chart. Other notable tracks from the album included a tribute song to Freddie's favourite cat Delilah, titled Delilah. The crazy but lovable track written by Freddie describes his relationship with his cats and how he adored Delilah's personality. Delilah was gifted to Freddie by Jim in 1987 and would manage to outlive Freddie being last spotted on the walls of Garden Lodge in 2004. Despite Roger not being much of a fan of the track at all, Freddie got his wish and it made the cut. Freddie was so cat crazy that he even included a dedication to his cats on his solo Mr. Bad Guy album, where the dedication read, This album is dedicated to my cat Jerry, also Tom, Oscar and Tiffany, and all the cat lovers across the universe. Screw everybody else. While the interesting track titled Bijou was fought up by Brian and Freddie to turn a song inside out, with Brian's guitar doing the verses and the vocal doing the break. The song was not groundbreaking as the band Yes had already done this, but it turned out to be a beautiful and interesting track. Queen would also have a number one hit in Poland with Roger's song, Ride the Wild Wind. On the 5th of September, 1991, These Are the Days of Our Lives was released and became their final and fourth number one in the UK. It also reached number one in Ireland and Poland. The song originally written by Roger for his children would also have a dual meaning in the end, serving as a great farewell song for Freddie, where at the final line of the song he says, I still love you, 
almost like a farewell and thank you to his fans as he appears in the video clip for one last time. Despite feeling and appearing extremely ill, Freddie powered through and recorded These Are The Days Of Our Lives for the music video. It is said by bandmates that Freddie was still full of high spirits and cracking jokes, seeing the positive side of things. Brian and Roger both recall that he would very rarely complain and just got on with the job, as he had reached a state of content with his career and had no regrets. This music video is the last time Freddie was seen on camera. Despite being in tremendous pain, especially with his legs, Freddie propped himself up against some equipment, downed some of his favourite vodka and recorded the video. Taking several takes, he was determined to get it right and to finish it. He will require plenty of breaks, but with a large smile on his face, he produced a beautiful performance for his fans to enjoy. Due to his lack of ability to move about due to the disease, he used many hand movements to depict the words he was singing. Freddie was dressed in a vest featuring each of his favourite cats during the music video, and a black and white filter was used along with loads of makeup to hide his physically deteriorating features as much as possible. As Freddie's health continued to decline, he was now too weak to film further music videos. On the 14th of October, The Show Must Go On was released and reached number 2 in France, making the top 10 in a further 3 countries, and peaked at number 16 on the UK charts. Again, The Show Must Go On was a fitting track for Freddie to go out on, as the lyrics themselves state, The Show Must Go On. Brian had written the track for Freddie as the strength he showed and the determination he displayed to continue to do what he loves inspired him. Freddie's partner Jim would say, To me the most autobiographical line was, My makeup may be flaking, but my smile still stays on. That was true no matter how ill Freddie felt. He never grumbled to anyone or sought sympathy of any kind. It was his battle, no one else's, and he always wore a brave face against the ever-increasing odds against him. After the relative success of Innuendo, it would be the second time Queen would not tour after an album release. Obviously, Freddie was far too frail and was at the stage of being bedridden. Freddie was determined not to stop and requested that his bandmates kept bringing him more and more material that he could sing to. Freddie requested their producer Dave Richards from the Innuendo album bring him a drum machine to record tunes for songs, allowing the band to finish them off when he was gone. He would sing three takes of every line in a different variety of ranges, so they had plenty of material to choose from when he was gone. Freddie knew he wasn't going to make it and knew this was the only way to get one last album finished and keep the Queen legacy alive when he was not. Freddie began working on the track Mother Love, which despite his declining state, he produced some epic vocals and big notes. In what would become the final song Mercury would ever record, Freddie informed his bandmates while they were attempting to record the track that he wasn't feeling well and had to go lay down and have a rest. Freddie wouldn't return to finish the final verse, which left Brian to finish it after he had passed. It was the last time Freddie would ever be in the studio again with his bandmates. Freddie and the band were still situated in Montreux at this time, but due to Freddie's declining health, he would be forced to return to Garden Lodge back home in Kensington, London. Freddie began to learn of the deaths of close friends such as Rock Hudson in 1988 and those who had recently been diagnosed with AIDS such as Kenny Everett who had been diagnosed in 1989. Seeing so many succumb to the disease, he began to worry even more. Former manager Paul Prenter would even succumb to the disease, passing away at this time also. 
Freddie invited his bandmates Roger, Brian and John, Jim Beach, Mary Austin and other close friends to be with him at his bedside. Freddie was just content to have them sit and say nothing, satisfied with just having them present with him. He was visited by fellow musician and good friend Sir Elton John. He would entertain himself playing Scrabble with his visitors and watching TV. From June to November, Freddie remained at his Garden Lodge estate and grew weaker by the day. Mary Jim, his assistant Peter and his beloved cat remained at his side for a large part of this time. Mary would often sit with Freddie stroking his hair and comforting him. Freddie was required to have regular blood transfusions and a catheter inserted allowing him to be treated from home. Every now and then Freddie would require treatment at the hospital but this was made difficult by the media waiting outside. So he would be required to have treatment at 5 in the morning to avoid the press. On one occasion, Jim and Peter would play a hilarious prank on the media by dressing up a mannequin like Freddy and sending him out with the driver through the gates towards the hospital. The driver Terry honked his horn and the media began to follow. This provided a great laugh for Freddy and his loved ones and gave him a few moments of peace before the media would return. Unfortunately, in Freddy's last few weeks, he had slowly began to lose his sight and got to the stage where he could no longer walk and had to remain in bed. Mercury decided to even stop taking his medication and rely solely upon painkillers to speed up the dying process. On the 23rd of November, Jim Beach decided it would be wise to announce a statement to the public about Freddie's current state. Freddie was reluctant at first, but would soon agree as it was mostly for his fans. Just 24 hours before his death, a statement was released stating, Following the enormous conjecture in the press over the last two weeks, I wish to confirm that I have been tested HIV positive and have AIDS. I felt it correct to keep this information private to date to protect the privacy of those around me. However, the time has come now for my friends and fans around the world to know the truth and I hope that everyone will join with me, my doctors and all those worldwide in the fight against this terrible disease. My privacy has always been very special to me and I am famous for my lack of interviews. Please understand this policy will continue. Freddie also told Jim, You can do whatever you want with my music, but don't make me boring. Freddie would show his humorous side all the way up until his death. On the evening of the 24th of November, 1991, Freddie had been sleeping for a majority of the last two weeks of life, and eventually slipped into a coma and stopped breathing. Roger Taylor had left to visit Freddie when he received a call halfway through his trip to Freddie's house. Freddie's personal assistant, Peter Freestone, informed Roger that Freddie had unfortunately passed away. It was a devastating moment for everyone, and one Roger will never forget. Freddie's close friend and fellow musician, Dave Clark, from the Dave Clark Five, was the only person at his bedside at that very moment Freddie passed away along with his favourite cat, Delilah, by his side. One of his last actions was stroking his cat, Delilah, before slipping into a coma. He would slip in and out of consciousness before looking at Dave and smiling. For the last time, Freddy closed his eyes and passed away. Freddy was pronounced dead on the evening of the 24th of November, 1991. He was 45 years old while he was in pain for most of his last few years of life, he passed peacefully in his Garden Lodge estate in Kensington, London. The cause was found to be bronchial pneumonia, 
stemming from the AIDS virus. Mary Austin was next to discover the news and quickly phoned Freddie's parents, Bomi and Jur, and his sister Kashmira, to inform them of the sad news, with the family obviously devastated. The news quickly spread, reaching the papers that were published in the early hours of the following day. The Sun's front page reading, Freddie is dead. The last picture taken of Freddie was just days before his death, and he is seen standing frailly next to one of his cats, known as Oscar, in the garden. His funeral was held in West London Crematorium on the 27th of November, 1991, just three days after he had passed. It featured customs from Freddie's Zoroastrian religion, including the burning of almost all of Freddie's non-living possessions, and was attended by 35 of Freddie's close friends and family, including Mary Austin, his sister and parents, his three bandmates, Brian, Roger and John, Dave Clark and Sir Elton John. His coffin was carried into the cathedral to the music of Aretha Franklin, one of Freddie's favourite artists. Freddie would be cremated and Mary Austin was given the honour of spreading his ashes in a location understandably hidden from the public. Mary would receive Freddie's music royalties along with his parents Bomi and Jur and sister Kashmira. Mary was left Freddie's garden lodge estate which she would move into after Freddie's death with her partner and two kids. Freddie's cats remained at Garden Lodge with Mary as Jim moved out for Mary after receiving another house. His chef Joe Finelli, his personal assistant Peter Freestone and his partner Jim Hudden all received £500,000, while his personal driver Terry Giddings received £100,000. The outer walls to Garden Lodge would become a shrine after his death. It was covered in flowers, pictures, notes and graffiti of loving messages and tributes for the legend as the news spread around the world. As time went on, Bohemian Rhapsody shot back into people's minds when it was featured in the popular US comedy film Wayne's World in 1992, sending the track back into the US charts, making it a major hit in the US for the first time. In the same year, Roger appeared with Brian on stage at the Brit Awards, announcing that they would be holding a tribute concert in Freddie's honour as they accepted the award for Best British Single for These Are The Days Of Our Lives and the Outstanding Contribution to Music Award on Freddie's behalf. Roger then compiled a list of willing stars to perform at the tribute, and Brian said if you can get all of those artists to play, I'm in. John Deacon also decided to take part, which would be the last full-length concert he would ever perform again with Queen. Opting to retire afterwards, it is understand John couldn't carry on as a part of the band due to the loss of Freddie hitting him too hard, as the two did have a special bond writing many songs together and sharing a love for funk and dance music. The tribute concert was held on Easter Monday, the 20th of April 1992 at Wembley Stadium in London the same venue as the famous Live Aid performance. The concert would raise funds for AIDS awareness for the newly developed charity organisation, the Mercury Phoenix Trust, with 72,000 people snapping up tickets for the concert. Surviving members of Queen, Brian, John and Roger, played a range of their hits and favourite songs with special guest artists providing vocals and performing some of their own hits. Brian opened the show by saying, Hello, Good evening, Wembley and the world. We are here tonight to celebrate the life and work and dreams of one Freddie Mercury and give him the biggest send-off in history. 
Roger then steps up to the mic and says, It is for Freddy, it is for you all, and it is to tell the world that AIDS affects us all. John Deacon then steps up to the mic and gets drowned out by cheers, as he very rarely does interviews or speaks in public. Tribute videos of Freddy's life and achievements were played between performances, as they kicked off the show with a montage of Freddy's famous call and response, dressed in his iconic yellow marching band jacket. Brian May would open the show on vocals with Roger and John playing Tie Your Mother Down, before Joe Elliott from Def Leppard and Slash joins in. As Slash and Brian May begin playing side by side on their electric guitars, shredding the house down. Performances included Metallica, Def Leppard, Bob Geldof, Spinal Tap, U2, Guns N' Roses, Robert Plant, Black Sabbath, Tony Iommi, David Bowie, Annie Lennox, Seal, Paul Young and a range of other artists. But some of the best performances of the night included Elton John and Axl Rose performing Bohemian Rhapsody, David Bowie spontaneously reciting the Lord's Prayer and George Michael's performance of Freddie's all-time favourite song, Somebody to Love. Michael's performance stole the show and would have made Freddie very proud. The crowd singing along with George and Queen was especially spine-tingling and is worth a listen. Liza Minnelli closed the show with a performance of We Are The Champions, which Freddie would have also loved as he was a massive fan of hers. The final members of Queen, along with all the performers of the night, stood together as Roger closes the show after a deafening cheer from the crowd by saying, Good night, Freddie. We love you. As a video rolls onto the big screen of Freddie saluting the crowd in his red royal attire and crown from 1986, the concert was a massive success, raising £20 million for Mercury's AIDS charity. On the 5th of April 1994, grunge musician and Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain left a reference to Freddie Mercury in his suicide note, explaining that he was very envious of Freddie Mercury's ability to engage with the crowd and embrace this, stating, He seemed to love, relish in the love, and adoration from the crowd. The remaining members of Queen attempted to finish what work was left by Freddie to release their 15th and final studio album in November 1995, calling it Made in Heaven. The album debuted at number one in the UK, going five times platinum, selling 9.9 million copies worldwide. It hit number one in another 10 countries, including New Zealand, and made the top five in another four countries, including Australia. It did manage to have some hits with Heaven for Everyone, reaching number one in Poland and Hungary, and number two in the UK. A Winter's Tale was written by Freddie after looking out his window in Geneva, Switzerland, when recording there. He recorded it all in one take due to the fact he felt he was running out of time. Brian states that Freddie wrote the song in Montreux in a little house on the lake that we called the Duck House. The extraordinary thing is he's talking about life and its beauty at a time when he knows he hasn't got very long to go. Yet there's no wallowing in emotion. It's just absolutely purely observed. It went on to reach number six on the UK chart and became one of his last songs. With Freddie's solo music revamped by Queen, Too Much Love Will Kill You would peak at number five and I Was Born To Love You would reach number 11. The song Mother Love that was mentioned earlier was Freddie's final unfinished vocal performance and would feature Brian May singing for the last verse. It is a haunting but beautiful track that Brian and the band transformed into a masterpiece. 
Despite Freddie's weakening body, he manages to squeeze out some legendary notes in this track, making it a special final moment for Freddie. The album's success would make Queen's total of number one albums in the UK go to nine from 15. It was during this year of 1994 that Freddie's close friend and former DJ Kenny Everett would also die from AIDS. In 1996, a large statue of Freddie was unveiled by Freddie's father and Freddie's friend, an opera singer, Montserrat Caballé, with Brian and Roger also in attendance. It was erected in Switzerland, overlooking Lake Geneva, now five years after his death. In 1997, the three remaining members of Queen reunited to record a tribute song to Mercury and Princess Diana, titled No One But You, Only The Good Die Young. It was released as a bonus track on their compilation album Queen Rocks, featuring vocals from Roger and Brian, with John opting to stick to the bass. It managed to reach number 13 on the UK charts. Later in 1997, Roger and Brian would perform for the last time with John. They performed the show Must Go On in Paris, accompanied by Elton John and the Swiss Bejart Ballet Company. After John officially hung up the bass guitar, Roger and Brian continued to play at charity events and ceremonies together. Over the years, they both worked on their own solo projects, but would always come back to Queen. But in 1998, the band decided to call it quits. But it wouldn't take long for Brian and Roger to soon return after calling it quits and performed as Queen with other artists including rapper Wycliffe Jean, Pavarotti, Zuccero and Robbie Williams recording We Are The Champions for the Night's Tale soundtrack. It is evident that John felt it was unfair to continue using the Queen name and songs without Freddie and it didn't sit right with him. By 2001, Queen were the second highest selling group of all time just behind the Beatles. In the same year, they would be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, Ohio, and in 2002, Queen were awarded with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 2003, at Greenpoint Stadium in Cape Town, South Africa, Roger and Brian performed at a concert hosted by Nelson Mandela, performing Invincible Hope, featuring Mandela's speech. The same year, Brian, Roger, John and Freddie were all inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, for their amazing contribution to the music industry and songwriting ability. But sadly, Freddie's father, Bomi, had passed away at the age of 95 in late 2003. In 2004, Bohemian Rhapsody was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and was voted the UK's favourite hit of all time. Six years after calling it quits and 13 years after Freddie's death, Brian and Roger decided to take Queen on tour again. They decided to recruit a new bass player as John had declined and looked for a singer to feature with Queen. They would eventually pick former Bad Company lead singer Paul Rogers. Roger and Brian would be adamant to fans that he was not replacing Freddie and was only featuring with the band. They showed this by labelling themselves as Queen plus Paul Rogers. Their first performance together was at the Music Hall of Fame Awards where Queen was inducted becoming the inaugural inductees. From 2005 to 2006, Rogers performed with Roger and Brian, and it would be the first time Roger and Brian had toured since 1986 with Freddie and John. Roger and Brian liked the fact that Rogers didn't try to copy Freddie's on-stage persona, instead just performing the way he knew best. They would also receive an award for Outstanding Song Collection from the British Academy of Songwriters, Composers and Authors in 2005. Queen would make the Guinness World Records in 2005 as their albums had spent 1,322 weeks on the UK album charts. 
This equates to a stunning 26 years of Queen albums remaining on the charts. In 2006, Queen's Greatest Hits compilation would become the best-selling album of all time in the UK, beating the Beatles' Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band by 5.4 million sales. The compilation would go on to sell an amazing 25.5 million copies. Combine that with The Greatest Hits Part 2, which sold 18.9 million copies worldwide. In 2008, Queen and Paul Rogers performed together at Nelson Mandela's 90th birthday and they released an album called The Cosmos Rocks. It received mixed reviews and didn't have any hits. It simply wasn't the same without Freddie and John. Roger later stated, although he was a fan of Rogers' blues rock style and his voice, looking back he probably wasn't the best choice as a frontman. Roger remembers walking into a record shop in Europe and none of the albums were on shelves. He got incredibly agitated and regretting making the album in the first place. Despite this, they toured South America, Europe, Russia and the UK, selling out across the world. In 2009, Rogers would leave on mutual terms, stating he never thought it was permanent. This led Brian and Roger to perform We Are The Champions on American Idol in 2009 with runner-up Adam Lambert and winner Chris Allen. They were impressed with Adam, but would not go down that path just yet. During 2010, the Mercury Phoenix Trust will release a new initiative to help the fight against AIDS. With the Freddy for a Day fundraiser where participants dress as their favourite Freddy from over the decades with all the funds raised going towards the Trust Fund. It is now a worldwide event and occurs annually. During 2010, Freddy's partner Jim Hutton would also sadly pass away from lung cancer living another 19 years after Freddie's death. In 2011, at the MTV Europe Music Awards, Katy Perry would present Brian May with the Global Icon Award, closing the show with a performance of The Show Must Go On, We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions, with none other than Adam Lambert. The performance gathered lots of positive reviews, and Queen hired Adam Lambert to become their new lead singer. To this day, Queen plus Adam Lambert continue to sell out shows worldwide, Adam regularly switches between his solo career and Queen and appears to be a great fit for the band leading into the future. At the London Olympic Games closing ceremony in 2012, singer Jesse J would perform We Were Rock You in honour of Freddie. While on the large screen, Freddie was seen performing his famous call and response with the live crowd responding. In 2014, Ben Elton's musical We Were Rock You would finally close since being opened in 2002. The musical was highly successful, and many believe Freddie would have been flattered to have his life and music turned into a play. Sadly, in early 2016, Freddie's beloved mother, Jur, passed away at the age of 94. On the 1st of September 2016, a plaque was unveiled at 22 Gladstone Avenue, Feltham, on the house that Freddie lived during his teenage years. It was unveiled by Freddie's sister, Kashmira, and Brian May. In 2018, a feature film called Bohemian Rhapsody was released starring actor Rami Malek as Freddie. It told the story of Freddie's life and career with Queen and was highly successful at the box office. It was met with mixed reviews due to the dramatisation of certain events, but all in all was a strong film, earning Rami Malek an Academy Award for Best Actor and the film earning Best Motion Picture at the Golden Globes. During August 2019, Freddie was inducted into the Rainbow on a Walk of Fame in San Francisco for his contribution in relation to the LGBTQ community. 
Later that year, he would have a street in Warsaw, Poland, named after him. Today in 2020, Mary Austin still resides in Garden Lodge with a family keeping Freddie's legacy alive. In modern music today, artists such as Katy Perry, Panic at the Disco, The Killers, Adele, Robbie Williams and Lady Gaga have all been heavily influenced by Queen and Freddie's performance style. Lady Gaga going as far as naming her stage name after the famous Queen song, Radio Gaga. To this day, Queen have sold an estimated 300 million albums in total, winning a total of four Brit Awards and four Ivor Novello Awards. They have had 18 number one singles worldwide, with four in their home country, the UK, and 18 number one albums, including compilations and live albums. They even managed to break into the American market, selling 34.5 million records there. Their biggest number one hit, Bohemian Rhapsody, sits at 1.1 billion views on YouTube. They have performed over 700 live shows and are the only group in history to have every member of the band compose more than one number one hit single, making them one of the greatest, most accomplished bands of all time. Brian is now 72, Roger 69, and John 67, and all would go on to have children of their own and are still alive and kicking today. John lives a private life away from the spotlight, while Roger and Brian tour as Queen plus Adam Lambert. Queen's manager Jim Beach is now 78 and Freddie's sister Kashmira would also have two children and is still alive today at the age of 68. Mary Austin also has two children and resides in Garden Lodge to this day with her husband and is now 67. Freddie will live on as one of the greatest entertainers, frontmen and vocalists of all time. The boy from Zanzibar dreamed big and knew he was going to be a star someday. He is now looked up to by so many aspiring and current musicians and has changed the way we think and feel about music today. Through his songwriting and creativity, his amazing live performances and willingness to keep doing what he loves in the face of fear, controversy, illness and even death is inspiring. Freddie lived his life to the fullest and died with no regrets. His bandmates John, Brian and Roger, Sister Kashmira and Mary Austin will live on to tell his story for many years to come. There will never be another band as special as Queen, or a frontman as funny, daring and dangerous as Freddie. Freddie's legacy continues to live on through his music, and his bandmates have continuously kept Queen's music in the public eye for decades, and hopefully for generations to come. What a wonderful life and career, and it is most definitely not a boring life, as Freddie once feared. As Freddie would say, I always knew I was a star, and now the rest of the world seems to agree with me. Okay, thank you everyone for listening. I really hope you enjoyed part two of the Freddie Mercury story. What a wild ride that legend had. That wraps up episode one, parts one and two. Make sure you like, share, subscribe and leave a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget if you would like to support the podcast by becoming a patron, head to Patreon to check out how you can keep this podcast going and sign up to one of three membership packages starting at just $1 a month and include extra content and bonuses. Again, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Stay tuned for next week's episode, which will be revealed on our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this 
is lyrics of their life.